Hugging through Joshua, we're now on the last lap. They have two chapters to go. Each of these two uh, concluding chapters in Joshua contain uh, a speech of his, farewell speech of sorts, to the nation. This is a man that had been a great statesman, a warrior, leader to this nation. And they had developed a great loyalty and allegiance and affection for him. And as he neared the end of his life, there were some things he wanted to impress upon his fellow countrymen before he passed on. I thought of the great speech that George Washington gave to his troops when he retired, left active service, went back to Mount Vernon to retire, and the stirring and gripping speech that he gave his soldiers to inspire them for the challenges ahead. That's what Joshua was doing with the nation here in chapter 23. If you look at chapter 23, you'll see that the chapter falls naturally into three divisions. There's first of all a promise in verses 1 through 5 that Joshua reminds them of. Then in verses 6 through 11, he makes an appeal to them. And verses 12 through 16 gives them a warning. We'll use that simple little outline to gather our thoughts this morning. First of all, he makes a promise to the nation in verses 1 through 5. Now it came about after many days, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their enemies on every side, and Joshua was old, advanced in years, that Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders and their heads and their judges and their officers, and said to them, I am old, advanced in years. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has been fighting for you. See, I have apportioned to you these nations which remain as an inheritance for your tribes, along with all the nations which I have cut off from the Jordan, even to the great sea, toward the setting of the sun. And the Lord your God, he shall thrust them out from before you, And drive them from before you. And you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. It's clear as we've already seen that at this point in Israel's history, they controlled the bulk of the land of Canaan. Major trade routes, the major population centers, the major fortified cities, the Israelites controlled. And yet there were still pockets of resistance. Canaanites who occupied territory and cities that the Israelites had not yet taken, there was still work left to be done, just as there always is in the spiritual life. We never arrive, always pockets of resistance that the enemy still has his grip on in life, no matter how mature, no matter how far we've progressed, there yet remains work to be done. And Joshua is preparing them to face those challenges without his presence. He knew that his life was drawing to a close, that the leader on whom they depended look to for guidance and direction and inspiration would no longer be there. And Joshua wanted to prepare them to go into the future without him at the bridge. But he uh, reminds them here that the Lord will give them continued victory. He promised them, in fact, that the Lord will do this. And he uses an interesting Expression in verse 4, he reminds them that the Lord had already apportioned these 
peoples which remain. He'd already divvied them up among the nation. Even though they didn't possess them yet, God had already divided them up. He said, okay, Joseph, you guys get this land. And Ephraim, you get this. Manasseh, you get that. Uh, even though those lands and peoples were not yet in control of the Israelites. Because God was going to be faithful to his promise to them. It's a bit like chess being handed what's called a one game. Those of you that play chess, I know the chess masters refer to that analogy that if you sit down at a board that someone has been playing and they've left you in a position where all you have to do is make intelligent, rational moves and you're guaranteed a victory, that's being given a one game. And Joshua says that's what you face. You've been handed a one game. Still some moves that you have to make, but they're the rational, intelligent ones. And if you'll do that, you're guaranteed a victory. Similar to what Paul said to the Philippians in Philippians 1.6. He says, I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he knew that he would not be there to see them into their future. And that's why I believe you'll notice in this paragraph he emphasizes that they owed their success not to him, but to the Lord. He may have been the instrument through which the Lord worked, but their success was due to the activity of the Lord on their behalf and not his. That's why he says in verse 3, you've seen all that the Lord your God has done. End of verse 3, for the Lord your God is he who has been fighting for you. In verse 5, the Lord your God, he shall thrust them out. In the verse 5, just as the Lord your God promised you. It says the success that you've experienced in the past, even though God has used human uh, instrumentality to do it, you owe to the Lord. You owe that success and prosperity in advance to the Lord. And He is the one that will see you into the future. He will thrust out these nations in verse 5. Uh, that word was used elsewhere. That first verb in verse 5 was used elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to a cattle drive. And the picture that Joshua paints for the people is that uh, these Canaanites were like unruly cattle occupying rangeland that really didn't belong to them. And the Lord, like a good trail boss, was going to come in and take the whip to these unruly cattle and drive them off this range elsewhere so that you could inhabit the land. And he says also in verse 5 that uh, the Lord will drive them out from before you. And you'll notice in the margin, if you have a New American Standard, that that verb can also be translated to dispossess. The Lord will dispossess these people. done that occasionally in my, my own home. The picture there is that the Lord, this land is in control of the Canaanites, and the Lord is going to forcibly take it from their hands and give it to the Israelites to whom it rightfully belongs. And as I mentioned, I occasionally have to do this with my own uh, son. He'll be playing with a neighbor child, and they'll be squabbling over a toy, and my son will snatch it out of the hands of his neighbor when it rightfully belongs to him, and I'll have to step in. And now, J.D. may be stronger than my neighbor, but he's not as strong as me. And I can dispossess that toy from him and hand it to the one to whom it rightfully belongs. And Joshua says to the nation, the Lord will do that for you. 
He will reclaim the land from the enemy that is held in his grip, and he will give it to you. He is the strong one. He is the one who has been fighting for you. And I believe what Joshua is seeking to do with the Israelites at this point is to make them independently dependent upon the Lord. He wanted them to have uh, a relationship, a dependence upon the Lord that was independent of his presence and his inspiration and his encouragement because he knew he would no longer be around to give that. So he's seeking to make clear to the Israelites that the basis on which they can face the future with confidence and authority is not that he will be with them to see them into their uncertain future, but that the Lord their God would be with them. He would be the one who would fight for them, whether Joshua was a part of that program or no. And I guess an important thing for all of us to seek in our own spiritual experience is to become independently dependent upon the Lord so that we're not, we're not absolutely dependent on people around us to prop, to prop us up and to sustain us. Because the Lord will, at various times in our life, will bring us into circumstances to face challenges that we have to face alone or have to face without those upon whom we've depended. Maybe a high schooler graduating and, and going to a campus out of state or out of town and away from the friends and the leadership and the fellowship that's sustained his walk with God. And it may be... Uh, job transfer that takes you and your family away from the, the church and from the fellowship that you've come to depend on and, and to need. And yet that's taken from you as, you as you are transferred. Or maybe a spouse who is forced, even through circumstances beyond their control or wishes, to face life alone in the future without someone upon whom they depended for companionship and warmth and security and protection. And what Joshua wants to say to the Israelites is still true to us today, that, that we can face a, an uncertain future alone, if necessary, with confidence, know that we can survive, that we can conquer, because the Lord our God is fighting for us. The people on whom we've depended in the past may not be there, but the Lord will. And we can face the future then with a great deal of confidence. So that's the first thing that Joshua says. Uh, the first component of being independently dependent upon the Lord is to realize that He is your sole source of sufficiency. He is really the only one in life that you need because He will fight for you. Now in verses 6 through 11, Joshua makes three appeals to the nation and through them to us. Let's read verses 6 through 11 together. Be very firm, then, to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, so that you may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left, in order that you may not associate with these nations, these which remain among you, or mention the name of their gods, uh, better translated, not to call upon the name of their gods, that is, to depend upon their gods, or make anyone swear by them. The point of that is if you uh, insisted that someone else take an oath, make a promise to you of some nature, you would often ask them to invoke the name of God as a way of everyone realizing that that God would hold you accountable for the word that you had made, the promise that you would made. 
And Joshua says, when that happens, be sure that they invoke the name of Yahweh to hold them accountable. Don't depend on the gods of the Canaanites to hold others accountable for the promises they make to you. Or serve these foreign gods or bow down to them. But in contrast, he says in verse 8, and it's a very strong contrast in Hebrew, but you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out great and strong nations from before you. And as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. One of your men puts to flight a thousand. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you, just as he promised you. So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. Three appeals he makes here uh, to us. First of all, to obey the scriptures in verses 6 and 7. To cling to the Lord in verses 8 through 10. And to love the Lord in verse 11. First appeal he makes to the nation is to be very firm. The idea behind that verb is to be devoted to keeping and doing all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. So the first thing Joshua says to the nation, I want you to pledge yourselves this day to obey the scriptures. To determine what the scriptures teach about life and then give yourself wholeheartedly with your commitment and energy to obey it. To do what it says, no matter how inconvenient, no matter how much it goes against your instinct to obey the scriptures. And notice he says to do this with all of the scriptures, not just the parts that we like or the parts that are easy to obey, but in some ways, even in particular, the parts that are difficult for us to obey. So the question we ask in every situation that we're faced with is, what do the scriptures instruct me to do? And then when we discern that, we give ourselves holy dependence and faith and commitment to do it. Scripture tells me to forgive my brother from my heart. Genuinely, sincerely, from the depths of my heart to forgive my brother for the wrong that he's done to me. And pledge myself to do that, even if everything in me wants to nurse a resentment and carry a grudge. And uh, I refuse to participate in, in, in office gossip and slander, regardless of how much I agree with what the people around me are saying, and regardless of how attractive it would be to, to participate in that kind of backstabbing. Because I'm pledged to do everything that the Scripture instructs me to do. And notice that Joshua indicates that you can veer to the right hand or to the left. The, the image is that the Scriptures are like a road map for life. And it, it outlines a path for us to follow, a path for us to walk. And it's possible to veer off of this path, this road, to the right hand and to the borrow pit on that side, or to veer off to the left-hand side and to the borrow pit on that side of the road with disastrous results. I was driving home uh, about a week ago after a fairly heavy snowstorm, and I had my two kids in the backseat of the car. Everybody was buckled in and so forth. And I was driving at what I was convinced was a moderate uh, speed down uh, north five mile. And suddenly, without any sort of warning, my car just lurched, honest, to the left. <laughs> I wasn't accelerating, decelerating, anything, but the car lurched to the left. 
And it's weird how those things happen because they happen like in slow motion. You're not going very fast. There's nothing you can do. You can't control anything. And I remember Jana in the back seat, you know, she could tell something was going on. And she said, Daddy, what's going on? I says, well, sweetheart, we are now sliding across the <laughs> left-hand lane of this road. And we are about ready to take out that mailbox right there. And wham. And I wasted uh, two mailboxes and the wrought iron stand that they, that they were on. And... Uh, Vivid reminder to me of the hazards of veering from the path to the right <laughs> or to the left. Remember in 1980, uh, Debbie and I took a trip to Washington, D.C. with, uh, with Terry Pape and uh, his wife. Those of you that know Terry well will be able to identify with this story. Uh, we wanted to go to D.C. and kind of see the sites, the Smithsonian, the Air and Space Museum. And, of course, I was really eager to see the National Art of, uh, Gallery of Art. And uh, at any rate... Uh, we hit the road, and uh, we discovered, the three of us, quite quickly, that Terry's motto for, this was from Dallas, so we had, I don't know, 1,500 miles or something like that to get to D.C. Uh, Terry's motto for life was, in order to be there, you've got to get there. And uh, he was willing to drive all night, if necessary, to reach the destination. Uh, we called him the Midnight Cowboy. In fact, I remember vividly one night about 12.30 in the morning, we had this little uh, small uh, motorhome that we'd rented, and I had been riding in the back with uh, the women. And at the rest stop, I took Terry aside. I said, look, Terry, we don't stop. We've got mutiny on the bounty back here. We better pull off somewhere and spend the night. But it struck me as a vivid illustration of the kind of thing that Joshua was talking about here, a wholehearted, single-minded focus on following the path that the Scriptures outline for us. We can veer to the right into legalism, where we become preoccupied with the externals of, of Christianity, and we begin to add to the list of commands that are found in the Scriptures. And this is a, this is a frequent error that conservative churches make, adding to the list of what constitutes righteousness and making the Christian life burdensome and heavy to people. And Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we're not to veer in that direction. Nor are we to veer to the left in the direction of license where we, we loosen the standards of Scripture and relax them to, to excuse our own uh, behavior. I find this is a common tendency for us to fall into individually is that we have this tendency to condemn in others what we excuse in ourselves. We are actually quite legalistic when it comes to applying the scriptures to others, but a bit uh, guilty of license when we apply it to ourselves. And one of the ways that we do this is by using different labels for the same behaviors. Someone else may be uh, prejudiced and bigoted. We, we simply have firm convictions. Um, other people are... Uh, in a rut, we're simply in a groove, uh, or um, other various and sundry little substitutes that we come up with. I was talking to a, a man on Friday who had a, has a good friend who believes that you can be entirely sanctified. You can be wholly sanctified so that you never sin again the rest of your life. And this friend of his claimed that this had happened to him when he was 18. And he was now 34, and in those 16 years had never sinned once. And this pastor was talking to a mutual friend and just saying, you know, I know that guy, and I'm not sure I agree with him. And, uh, 
His friend, who also took the same point of view on sanctification, said, well, you need to understand that there is a difference between sin and the weakness of the flesh. He says, that's important to do. No. But we can be uh, often guilty of sort of relabeling things to excuse our own uh, behavior, make things look less sinister. Uh, you know, instead of calling it gossip, we just tell people that we're sharing this with them so they can pray intelligently, that sort of thing. You know, other people can be demanding and insistent. We simply want what's fair, that's all. So we need to be careful that we do not veer to the right hand or to the left, but pledge ourselves to obey everything in the Scripture. You notice in verse 7, he cautions them against associating with the nations that remained in the land, that there was a great danger that they posed to the spiritual life of the Israelites. And he'll come back to that in just a moment. The second appeal he makes to them in verse 8 is to cling to the Lord your God as you have done this day. This is the same word that's used in Genesis 2.24 to refer to a husband cleaving to his wife or clinging to his wife. And there are several vivid word pictures in the Old Testament where this word is used. It's used, for instance, of your tongue clinging to the roof of your mouth when you're thirsty or just had a peanut butter sandwich made with Skippy. And it's also used in other places to refer to a soldier who would be gripping the hilt of his sword in battle. And, and Joshua says to the nation, I want you to cling to the Lord, to hold on to him with a firm grasp, just as that soldier would cling to the hilt of his sword in battle. That's his lifeline. It is his defense. It's his protection. And so you are to cling to the Lord in the same way, to be your sufficiency, your strength, your security, and your protection. I've discovered with my uh, children, as much as I like to, to hold their hands, they rarely like to hold mine. If we're taking a walk, they always want to be running ahead and exploring and poking around. And, uh, but I've discovered the one time when they will quickly cling to my hand or to my leg is when they feel threatened or, or insecure, that they'll run to me and hold on with everything. And that's a picture of how we are to cleave to the Lord when we feel threatened or insecure, to cling to Him. Debbie and I were watching an Agatha Christie movie this last week, and in uh, one scene in this movie, the amateur sleuth who is about to solve this murder is shoved overboard on this cruise ship, and she pitches over the railing, and on her way down, she grabs onto the only thing in reach, which was a rope, which was tied off to the, to the railing. And she clung to that rope because it was the only thing between her and a watery grave. And again, I thought of the picture, that is, of the way in which we are to cling to the Lord, to realize that He is the only thing between us and disaster, and to cling to Him with both hands. Now, he tells us in verses 9 and 10 why we are to do that. Why should we cling to the Lord with that kind of trust? For, he says, the Lord has driven out, that's the same word, uh, dispossess, that we had in verse 5, for the Lord has driven out great and strong nations from before you. And no man has stood before you to this day. One of your men puts to flight a thousand. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you, just as he promised you. This is, a, again, a quite arresting picture that uh, what Joshua brings to mind is a picture of a battlefield where there are a thousand of the enemy, armed to the teeth, and one Israeli soldier. 
on that battlefield, on that hillside, standing alone against a thousand of the enemy bent on destroying him. And yet Joshua points out, with the Lord on your side, the one puts to flight a thousand. And the picture of these thousand heavily armed soldiers turning tail and running before this one lone Israeli soldier waving his solitary sword in the air. As Howard Hendricks puts it, God plus one is a majority. And the point that he's making is with God's presence in life, it reverses all of the apparent odds. No matter how threatening, intimidating a situation appears to be, with God's presence in your life, the odds are reversed. remember reading in one of Ray Steadman's book uh, a story that he told about his own experience in World War II. He remember seeing a poster in World War II, and the poster actually had two pictures on it. On the left-hand side of the poster was a picture of a tank facing down a soldier, an enemy tank facing down an American soldier. And it was drawn in the proper proportion. And the tank had its barrel trained directly on the soldier who was armed only with a standard-issue rifle and uh, obviously was in serious trouble. In the picture to the right, the soldier was now outfitted with the latest in anti-tank technology, an anti-tank weapon which he had hoisted to his shoulder, and he was facing the tank armed with this anti-tank weapon. And the artist, to, to capture the rearrangement of the odds in that sort of counter, to match reality, had drawn the tank tiny and shrunken, and the soldier armed with this anti-tank weapon towering over this once threatening adversary. And that's something of what Joshua was saying to us here. That is why we are to cling to the Lord, because he reverses the odds in life in our favor. I've been reading a remarkable book over the last couple of weeks. It's written by a man, a Christian man, who was imprisoned in one of Castro's uh, prisons for 22 years from shortly after the revolution took place in 1959 until 1983. 22 years he spent in uh, Cuban prisons and treated in ways that are almost unspeakably uh, inhumane and uh, cruel. Uh, For instance, they uh, were political prisoners originally. Castro at one point decided he wanted no political prisoners in his jails, and so he asked all of the political prisoners who were in prison because they had protested the cruelty and savagery of his, of his dictatorship, asked them all to put on the uniforms of the common ordinary thieves and muggers and murderers who were also in prison, which was a standard-issue blue prison uniform. And they refused to do it because they realized that it was a propaganda ploy on Castro's part. It was a way of seeking to break break their will. And as a consequence, Castro forced them to wear nothing for years. They were naked, had no bedding even in their cells, had to sleep on hard, cold uh, granite floors. Even when their families came to visit them, they were not allowed the dignity of wearing clothing. At one point... Uh, in an effort to break the will of these prisoners to get them to confess their crimes against the revolution and to uh, repent and uh, to be restored. Uh, they were locked into these cages, literally, and the door was soldered shut, so they had no opportunity even to leave the cell for exercise, sunshine, fresh air. 
And what's more, the roof over their cells was just a, a wire screen that the guards could patrol, walk right over their cells. And the guards would carry these long poles with them. And any time they would see one of the prisoners trying to sleep or falling asleep, they would poke them with this pole to keep them from getting any sound sleep at all. And since the guards rotated in shifts, they were constantly prepared to do that. And he expresses in the book the longing that they developed just for minutes, just a half hour of uninterrupted sleep and how they hungered for that and weren't permitted that by the savagery of their, their captors. And he shares even further, which is almost impossible to imagine, that these guards occasionally, in fact frequently, would come by, march across the top of their cells, and just dump over their heads buckets filled with urine and uh, feces. And there was no way for them to cleanse themselves or to bathe themselves. And they would have to live in this filth for months on end. And he, he describes in that how, in the book, how strong the tendency was to, to lash out with hatred and bitterness and rancor against these men who were, uh, who were treating them so with such unspeakable cruelty. And yet this man was a believer, and he clung to the Lord in those moments of great uh, pressure and stress, and the Lord gave him victory. I just clipped out one quote from the book, speaking of the moments before he would fall asleep. Every night for those few minutes before sleep came, I thought about my family, And I prayed to God to strengthen my faith and allow me to keep firmly in mind the resolve which I had taken, not to allow myself to be spiritually destroyed. I prayed that my soul would not be hardened and degraded by rancor or hatred. My greatest concern at every moment was not to grow discouraged or desperate. I saw the ravages of depression and desperation on many of those in jail with me. In my conversations with God in the solitude of those few minutes, I penetrated to the foundations of that faith which would be so severely tried in the course of years, but which would finally be victorious. Strengthened by his faith in God, his will was never broken, and he emerged, even after 22 years of that sort of treatment, a conqueror over what they had tried to do to him because he had clung to the Lord. Now the third appeal that Joshua makes in verse 11 is to take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. Not only to obey him, not only to cling to him, but to love him. Notice he tells us to take diligent heed to ourselves to do this. In other words, this is not something that comes naturally to us, not something that we will simply fall into, a love relationship with the Lord. Like any love relationship, it needs to be guarded and nourished and nurtured and developed. I think what Joshua means by loving the Lord is not uh, necessarily, although this is a part of it, is having warm feelings about God. As we mature in our relationship with Him, as we understand the depth of His mercy, compassion, sustenance, then we develop a, a greater emotional attachment to Him. But I think what Joshua is talking about here primarily is a decision that we make to do what pleases Him. This is what you do with those that you love. You seek to please them. And to satisfy them. Because you love them. It's a decision you make with your will. To seek what pleases them. I think Joshua was saying that to the people. Make a decision to seek with your life what pleases God. Not only seek to obey Him. 
not only cling to Him, but seek to do what pleases Him out of your love for Him. In my dad's group this last Thursday, we were talking about the uh, one of the genetic uh, differences between men and women, and it has to do with packing for a vacation and the amount of stuff that is required to successfully go on vacation in those episodes will be to please them, to satisfy them. We'll be willing to allow them to take as much stuff as they can fit into the car. I've had to draw the line at the washer and dryer. I said, Debbie, no, we can't, we can't take that. But the real issue, Joshua says, is whether your, your heart is to, is to please the Lord. If you do that, then you will want to do what satisfies Him, what pleases Him. And he says, take heed to yourselves to do that. So obey God, cling to Him, and love Him. Now, lastly, he gives a warning to them in verses 12 through 16, which we do not have time to develop in any detail. Let me just read this paragraph and make a couple of comments. The reason he says we must take diligent heed in verse 11 is because the threat to our spiritual lives that is posed by close relationships with unbelievers. That's what he's talking about here. The threat that would be posed to the Israelites by intermarrying with, developing relationships of loyalty and affection with those whose hearts was far from God. He says this is the greatest threat that faces you as a nation, is loving a spouse or loving a partner in life, taking on a lover or a wife or a husband whose heart is far from God. For if you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, notice he uses the same verb in verse 12 that he used in verse 8, the choice, he says, that faces you as a nation is whether you will cling to the Lord or cling to someone whose heart is far from Him. If you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you, and intermarry with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know with certainty that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out from before you that they shall be a snare and a trap to you. Notice that's how it begins. The word, Both words he uses there have to do with a bird trap and the bait. The bait that is placed in a bird trap, which draws the bird to the net. And then when the bird takes the bait, the fowler's net falls on the bird and traps it. It says, originate relationship will look so good and so appealing and so satisfying. And yet it's a trap which will draw your heart away from God. And then eventually these nations will be a whip on your sides in verse 13 and thorns in your eyes. That eventually your relationship with them will be just as if they had taken a whip with pieces of bone and and metal embedded in the end of it and lashed you with it on your sides. And they will be just like thorns in your eyes. A related word in Hebrew for this word thorn is the word for fish hook. So it would be just like having fish hooks embedded in your eyes. That the state of misery and emptiness, desolation, will be great. So avoid being trapped by this. Until, he says, eventually you will perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Behold, verse 14, today I am going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one word of all the good words which the Lord your God spoke concerning you has failed. All have been fulfilled for you. Not one of them has failed. And it shall come about that just as all the good words which the Lord your God spoke to you have come upon you, 
So the Lord will bring upon you all the threats, literally all the evil words, until he has destroyed you from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. When you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land which he has given you. Three times Joshua makes the point to them that if they turn their back on God and walk away from him out of their allegiance to someone else, that it will cost them greatly. In fact, he says three times that the entire inheritance which God has granted to you, this good land that he's given you, that will be threatened. It will be up for grabs. You'll run the risk of losing everything that God has done for you to that point in your life. And he just warns us that when we deal with God, we're just not playing at this. This is life. This is life and death. And the issues of life and death are set before us. And God, is, as Aslan was described in Narnia Chronicles, is not a tame lion. Someone to be feared and someone to be uh, respected. One of the first of the Narnia Chronicles, a young girl is prepared to meet Aslan. And she asks Mr. Beaver... Aslan is waiting for them in the forest, which looks dark and foreboding itself. And she knows that Aslan is a lion. And she says to Mr. Beaver, uh, who is trying to talk her into going and meeting Aslan, she says, is is he safe? Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver just laughed and said, no, he's not safe, but he's good. I think that's the word that Joshua wants to leave with us uh, today, that God is good, that he loves us. He wants to give us everything that we need. But uh, he's not safe. That if we turn our backs and walk away from him, what results is a tragedy far beyond what we could envision at this at this point. I've got a, a friend of mine who about a year ago was contemplating some very uh, serious decisions in his life, uh, which included walking away from the Lord and clearly what God wanted him to do. And a number of us appealed to him And we pointed out to him that he could not walk away from God without it costing him dearly. But he felt that he could. And as a consequence, uh, just a year later, he has uh, lost a very promising career. Uh, He has lost a wife who was loyal and loving to him and a son who worshipped the ground he walked on. And lost everything that God had given to him and granted to him and built into his life. And Joshua wants us to be aware of that, that God is not a, not a tame God. He's not safe, but he's good. So that's the appeal I would make to you uh, uh, from Joshua this morning for us to remember as we face the future that God is everything that we need, that he is fighting for us, and that our task then to be independently dependent, to face the future with confidence, is to obey him and cling to him and love him. I'd like to have you all stand, if you would, and... To send you into your week with these words from Joshua. You are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out great and strong nations from before you. And as for you, no man has stood before you to this day. One of your men puts to flight a thousand. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you just as he promised you. So take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God.